Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast, where we answer the biggest questions in business today and explore the latest research. I'm your host, Yasmin Rupersinger. Isabel Metz is a Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Melbourne Business School, whose latest research delves into why people are excluded in the workplace, what she calls the dark side of human and social capital. Professor Metz has found that even in large organisations, where people are highly regarded and have high human capital, be it knowledge or skill or experience, people of all levels are being excluded and categorised often as part of a way to climb the ladder, and this is leaving people who are excluded feeling denied and disconnected. This problem creates multifaceted challenges for everyone involved, including a lack of diversity and opening the door to negative emotions entering professional relationships. Professor Metz is here to tell us about it and what leaders can do to be more inclusive. Hi, Isabel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yasmin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Can we begin by, firstly, can you tell me what is a clique? Well, usually a clique is a group of people who are uh, really tight-knit and um, very harmonious. They tend to have strong norms and group cultural norms, including group cultural norms, and and they stick together to the point of being very selective about um, who can join the group and who should be excluded from the group. And when you do join, under what circumstances? So there is quite a high pressure to conform. So why do these cliques form in organisations? That's actually very interesting. I mean, there are several psychological theories uh, that predict that individuals will feel attracted to one another. Uh, And that attraction is usually based on on salient characteristics, such as as, uh, where they got their education from or what degree even uh, they obtained. So we could call these people the in group uh, uh, members as opposed to those people who are not in the clique or in the group who we we might call the out group members mm-hmm. right and these people uh, in the in group tend to work really well together which is not necessarily a bad thing but they work well together for several reasons um, and I'll mention two um, one is that they have lots in common usually, and therefore they tend to overlook differences, even differences in opinion amongst themselves. And this is in an, a conscious or unconscious effort to maintain harmony in the group and to continue to be accepted by the group as a group member because belonging is a very important human tendency, right? And it's important to to people. The second reason why these people tend to work well together is not just because they overlook differences, but also because group members tend to have higher credibility uh, than non-group members. So, for example, when when a group member makes a statement or issues an opinion about an organisational matter or maybe a change that has been proposed, they influence each other 
relatively easily because they they are heard, they have credibility, and and therefore um, these opinions and thinking in the group tend to be quite homogeneous. They they converge towards you know a uh, uh, one point of view that we all agree with, right? Um, we have also another theory which we call the social categorization theory and what this theory says and is related to groups and how groups form it suggests that uh, people use these observable um, characteristics such as gender or, or age or, or race or education to differentiate themselves from other people um, gender, for example, is one of the most visible and salient demographic dimensions. Uh, and it prompts almost like an immediate and almost an automatic categorization process. And we see this if we are attentive to discussions and conversations uh, in everyday life, uh, at work, and even outside work, we can see this gendered language happening all the time. So what happens is that people who are similar, for example, uh, of the same sex, are categorized as being in one group, and people who are different, say of opposite sex, are automatically categorized as being in another group or out-group members, right? Now, the problem is that these categorizations are not evaluatively neutral. They have a value. First of all, uh, people favor their own categories. Why do we do that? Well, we know that people are motivated to enhance and maintain a positive self-image, a positive identity. So what they do is if they belong to a group, they exaggerate the good points of their group because, of course, I belong to that group. Therefore, I'm, you know, I have all these good uh, characteristics. And they exaggerate between group differences, right, in order to enhance myself and to enhance my own group. So I consistently view uh, my group and myself uh, more positively than I view uh, the out group. So in fact, what we know is that people perceive in-group members, therefore, as more trustworthy, honest, more cooperative than out-group members. And this is the problem. It leads to then um, judgments that are based on perceptions and biases. And often those biases are to enhance uh, our own social identity. Now, another reason why these categorizations are not evaluatively neutral as well is because Society attaches value to certain categories. I'll give you an example. So there are certain demographic factors, for instance, gender, that acquire certain status value with people within society. 
And then society comes to agree that being a member in that particular group um, is somehow better than being a member in another group. I mean, let's think about this. If if society in general did not agree that some groups had a higher status and were better than other groups, um, they wouldn't uh, stand a difference. There would be a revolt, right? There would be chaos in society. So in a sense, um, these very strong evaluative uh, uh, statements that are uh, uh, prescribed to certain categories um, keep the social order, so to speak, in societies and in organizations. The, I can give you ex- another example other than, than gender. For example, um, height. Uh, taller people are again perceived to be more competent and of higher status in society than short people. You know, and there's no correlation between competence and height. The same thing with attractive people. Again, there's no correlation between being attractive and having a higher IQ or being more competent. And yet we, I mean, but I have to say, Yasmin, that if you were a woman, uh, it's no good being too attractive in the workplace unless, of course, you are in the modeling industry or in the beauty industry. But uh, by and large, being uh, attractive to a certain extent is helpful to your career. Again, it's a bias. There is no evidence that attractive people are in any way more competent or, or more enhanced in any way, you know, better sports people or whatever than anybody else. So it's a perception. So to answer your question, uh, why cliques form in organisations? Well, it's based on salient similarity between individuals. So members in each group might believe uh, more strongly than members in other groups, of course, that they are superior in some way, right? And consciously or unconsciously, what they will do is they will try to protect their special or privileged position by being very selective about who joins the group. So once this occurs, then you are faced with cliques in organisations. Right, right. Gosh, this is a little bit scary in a way, I suppose. We, we, I think these things are happening uh, unconsciously or subconsciously and it's quite confronting to hear about it. Uh, that's just my immediate reflection. But So you've given us some, um, some broad uh, examples of what cliques are and how they might appear. Would you have some other examples of cliques in organisations that you could share with us? So... So cliques can form uh, just about around any common characteristic or even common belief or value. So, for example, individuals who attend a particular education institution, say MBS, University of Melbourne or whatever, may believe uh, that they are better educated. And, and better equipped to succeed, or, or maybe if they went to Harvard Business School or, or, 
that kind of thing. So usually mm-hmm. that's how cliques form. Uh, they can form around beliefs. Um, they can also form around, uh, say, cultural background. And cultural background is a very strong one because uh, we are all born in societies or in communities and we tend to believe, of course, that our own values, cultural values, are stronger or better than others. I mean, otherwise, how would you explain why there are um, wars that are conducted uh, in the name of culture or even religious beliefs, right? So in a nutshell, uh, cliques in organisations can form around many aspects. Um, One aspect that's quite salient in organisations is, for instance, functional area, right? Um, Whether you're in finance or whether you're in marketing, It can form around hierarchical level. We see that a lot, you know, board members versus executives uh, or executives versus managers and and so on. And, of course, uh, cliques form around many demographics, uh, such gender is one that usually is very salient and we talk about that, but can be country of origin um, or, or can even be professional occupation whether I'm an accountant or or whether uh, I may think that uh, those kinds of knowledge and skills are superior to, say, um, human resources, which are softer skills, right? So people may have this connotation and this impression that, um, you know, professional occupation is one way in which we differentiate ourselves and we form ourselves into groups. Mm, Okay. I'd like to now explore some of the benefits of preventing cliques from forming. Can you let me know what those benefits might be? This is actually a really interesting question, but it's also a very difficult one uh, because it's natural for humans to form friendships and professional groups based on our own backgrounds, right, whether those are educational backgrounds, personal backgrounds, uh, culture, etc. So these are part of our social networks and other social structures, which we call our social capital. So this social capital, what it does, it provides Uh, often provides individuals uh, the opportunity to secure benefits uh, simply because they're members of the group. So, for instance, as a member of um, the academic group, uh, I may have some social benefits that uh, non-academics may perceive they don't have, right? So this is talking about our institution. Um, Doctors versus nurses and, and so on. So um, there are benefits for the individual in belonging in in cliques or social groups because there is some understanding, some commonality there. Um, Interestingly, there are benefits for organisations too uh, because, for example, a, a senior manager or an executive may have social contacts in her network that are useful to the organisation, 
right? So belonging to cliques uh, is important. The problem, of course, arises when um, those groups become uh, powerful uh, and become too cohesive and are too tight and exclude others right, mm. in the normal mm. course of the interactions. And when this occurs, then uh, members in these groups tend to overvalue their own characteristics and almost unconsciously sometimes devalue the characteristics of members in the, outs- uh, in the outside group. This is particularly problematic if the group is powerful, which is the case say, for instance, in organisations with a hierarchy, right? Um, So, for example, um, group members that are in a position to introduce or maintain systems that favour members of their own group, um, what they do is then they leave the non-group members feeling alienated and, and, and of course, a sense of unfairness prevails. I mean, I'm just going to use the example. I don't want to be very controversial, but I want to use the example of the very recent Australian Day Honours where there is a feeling that if you don't belong to certain groups, um you know, you overlooked, your achievements are not uh, seen as important. Whereas there are a lot of people who do a lot of social work that we never hear of, you know, and and never are never awarded. So this is an example of a system was established and, and favours particular, I mean, consciously or unconsciously tend to favour particular groups. And It's not until somebody in the art group, sometimes for extended periods of time, you know, could be like decades, they'd say, hello, I'm here, you know, you're not considering me. Um, They they leave those people alienated and, and out of. So then there's a sense of unfairness that prevails and people start feeling excluded. And once that happens in organizations, you have in groups and out groups and um, it doesn't lead to good outcomes. Let's talk a bit more about the out-group. Can you tell me what are some of the negative effects of being excluded from a clique? I'm going to be very clear here, Yasmin, that there are no benefits of exclusion. Exclusion can be very harmful to individuals. We are so deeply wired to belong to groups Uh, that social exclusion is interpreted by our brains as a significant threat. It's a threat to our own identities, our own self-esteem, etc. So we will unconsciously or consciously do whatever it takes to do to avoid that exclusion, right? And that's why we naturally, we join a new group We work out what behavior will earn us belonging and and then we start adopting that behavior as our own. And this is why we see, for example, um, individuals joining organizations, 
Uh, in the beginning, they may feel left out and, uh, and not part of the group, and they will try to work out what it is it that uh, will make me feel uh, like I belong and I can join groups. And over time, that's why you'll see in organizations, organizations become more homogeneous. Everybody starts acting the same, speaking the same, uh, even almost looking the same, right? So turnover in organizations is not such a, a bad thing. But the reason why we move towards homogeneity is because it allows us to belong. And the sense of belong, belonging is, is really important. Uh, it's really important for employees' well-being, for, for people well-being. So employee well-being uh, uh, encompasses psychological, uh, physical or social consequences of work, and it's reflected in our behavior. Um, it, it, it including our productivity and turnover, and that's why uh, some organisations work so hard in um, nurturing inclusive environments where everyone feels included. Because if we don't worry about whether or not we're being excluded, and if we feel that we're valued and included, then we're just more productive. And that's good for everybody. It's good for our well-being. It's good for organizations. It's good for nations. So um, uh, it, it is really important to not feel excluded. And we work really very hard at including ourselves in some sort of community, in some sort of group, even in organizations. So examples of psychological and social well-being are, for instance, uh, job satisfaction uh, and organizational commitment. And we see this in organizations all the time, including our own, where we measure job satisfaction uh, because it's important to people's well-being and ultimately uh, it's important to the individual's career, it's important to their financial well-being, it's important to the organization's uh, success as well. Um, therefore, I think that positive social relationships play a really important part in cultivating that healthy individual well-being at work. Uh, and because the um, interactions, peer interactions at work are usually so frequent and informal. I mean, we don't see that much in the last 12 months only because of a very special circumstance, which is COVID. But under normal circumstances, uh, our interactions at work are frequent and are informal. So social relationships uh, are important and they can affect um, subjective outcomes, such as how how do we feel about the organization? Do we fit in? Are we committed to the organization? Or if we feel uncomfortable in this organization, are we looking for, you know, to leave? Uh, as well as it affects objective outcomes, um, such as if I belong to the right group, maybe, guess what, I'm going to get a higher salary increase a uh, better promotion, um, you know, it, these decisions um, and likability affect the decision makers 
assessment of each individual's performance. Likeability is important. So belonging to the right group is important. Uh, and that drives our behaviour in organisations. Isabel, so what do leaders need to do to stop cliques from forming? That is a really interesting question because uh, it's very difficult to stop something that it naturally just happens. As human beings, we are going to try to form groups, right? Uh, It's almost Mm -hmm. like a primal tendency. But there are many ways in which leaders can minimise the influence of cliques or even their formation. So before doing anything, what I would suggest is that it's important for leaders uh, to understand how deeply is inclusion or exclusion felt in the organisation. So this can be achieved by regularly surveying the workforce so that you can benchmark uh, if anything that you are changing is improving that feeling of exclusion, for example. But then there are several ways in which leaders can discourage cliques from forming or at least from being very influential. Um, For example, um, one way is to ensure that values such as tolerance and respect are not just written on paper, but they are modelled by leaders and their staff. That means uh, by everyone in the organisation. Another way is by actually rewarding and recognising individuals and teams who demonstrate inclusiveness, respect and tolerance. A little bit like we are doing now with our diversity awards and inclusion awards. Um, Another way is to conduct seminars on how exclusion can inadvertently occur in the workplace and what to do about it. I mean, I I often, I don't believe that most people wake up in the morning and consciously think I'm going to exclude this particular person or this group, right? Um, So it's, it's, they are unaware. So it's important to make them aware. Um, Another thing uh, leaders can do is introduce training um, to increase the awareness of our own biases, our own prejudices in everyday interactions, um, and and also our own biases and, and prejudices in the decisions that we make in relation to colleagues um, that we may not be very comfortable with, right? So if I think of someone to be in a new important committee, I might think immediately, oh, yes, he will be perfect for that committee only because I'm comfortable with Yasmin and I know Yasmin well. But there may be other people who may be just as good or better not have been given those opportunities before. And by the way, I think it's really important that leaders attend that training and attend those seminars so that they signal how important this is to them, right? Um, This is the walking the talk. The other thing, and I'm just going to finish on this one, is I would encourage leaders and managers and even all of us to invite someone who we usually would not think of inviting to join uh, uh, in a committee or to apply for a promotion or even just to come to lunch 
with us and and our friends. So so go out of your comfort zone to include other peoples that that you wouldn't normally think of including. I have one more question for you before we wrap up for today, and that's to ask, how does your work on clicks fit in with your research into the dark side of human capital? I'll backtrack a little bit here. I usually uh, focus my research on the bright side of human capital and social capital. That is how human capital and social capital can assist individuals advancing organisations. So I do quite a bit of that. And in fact, that's how most research has approached the study of human capital and social capital. However, having... I've come to realize that having human capital and social capital doesn't always lead to good outcomes. Um, It can generate elitism, for example. It can generate, uh, therefore, corruption. It can uh, discourage innovation. It can encourage groupthink because we're all the same. We all think the same way. So that's how I started to become interested in the dark side of human capital and social capital. And how does that relate to cliques? Well, cliques are one potential dark side of human capital because what cliques can do is devalue um, individuals' work experiences, education, skills, and so on, on the basis that these characteristics are different from their own. Right, So they think they are better than others, and, and that is a dark side. In devaluing other people's human capital, uh, cliques are devaluing all those personal characteristics that are supposed to make us more valuable to our employers and better, better equipped to succeed. So if successful in maintaining this and the evaluation of other people's human capital, what cliques are doing are creating barriers to personal fulfillment for individuals who are different and are also preventing organisations from fully utilising all of their human capital. Isabel, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your research and your advice with us. This is really important stuff and And I think we're all uh, richer for having heard from you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Yasmin. Melbourne Business School is home to Australia's best MBA and business analytics degrees, as well as short courses for professionals and custom solutions for organisations. Our purpose is unleashing ideas and leaders for a sustainable future. Visit mbs.edu to find out more. Until next time.